Get it? Uh, Stonebridge, it is fantastic to be back with you guys. I think it's been about a month and a half ago that I was here. Uh, I was able to be a part of the Galatians series earlier on as well. And I'm just, I'm excited to be back. So this is, this is great. Um, so we, we're at the, the ending of this book of Galatians. And it, it was reminding me of a story that I heard one time of a young pastor that was just getting started. And he had this weird quirk where he would start every single sermon with, in conclusion. People were really confused, but he would walk up, he'd grab his Bible, he'd open it up, he'd say, in conclusion, he'd start reading the text and go on. So people are thinking, well, maybe he's just new, so that's gonna, that quirk will go away. But it just kept going on, month after month. So finally, the, the elders came to him and they said, like, well, Pastor, why do you start every single message with in conclusion? So he said, well, it's really simple. When I was younger... I used to kind of zone out during the sermon, but then when the pastor got to the end, he'd always say, in conclusion, and everybody kind of perked back up. And so I figured if I can just start off saying, in conclusion, then everybody's going to hopefully stick with me through the whole thing. So I'm not really sure if it worked for him or not, but the reason that I share that story is because we're basically at Paul's in conclusion moment of the book of Galatians. So this entire sermon today is basically one giant in conclusion so before we get to that, I would love to just kind of th- summarize the main theme of what's been going on here. So Paul, in this section, is going to take it and he's going to summarize these main themes of the letter and challenge the reader to stay true to the gospel. That's point number one. We have to stay true to the gospel. And what he's saying is, is to require circumcision is to deny the cross and the dawning of this new creation that we are in Christ. So those who belong to this new creation comprise the true Israel. That, that's the main concept theme. And if, if you remember where we've gotten to in that, starting back in, in Galatians 1, we had Paul where he, he finds out what's going on. So if you remember the story, Paul had gone and he had planted this church and he hears what's happening where these Judaizers have come in and started to preach a different gospel and Paul's just mad. So he starts off, there's no, none of those pleasantries of, hey, you know, I think so fondly of you. He's just mad. He just starts in and he's like, I am astonished that you have so quickly turned away from the gospel that I taught you. How dare people come in and preach you a different gospel than what it was. May they be accursed. Damn them. I cannot believe this. And there's just that, that pitch of just like, ah, he just wants to scream and explode. He goes on to lay out his story of who he is, how he was called to be an apostle, how he, he brought his message to the, the elders and the people in Jerusalem, and he was affirmed. If you remember last time I was with you, we were able to spend some time in the text where we talked about the conflict between Peter and Paul when they were in Antioch. And we had just this, the beautiful truth of Galatians 2.20, being, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's kind of teasing out that whole concept of a new creation. But, but Paul's still frustrated. If you remember even in Galatians 3.1, he starts off, he's like, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But his tone eventually kind of softens. As, as we get into chapter 3 and beyond, there's, the, there's these t- three series where he goes through where you have... He's giving an, an argument, then an application for that argument, and an appeal. And you have that cycle three times through. And his tone kind of softens as he goes through. If you remember in 420, he, he, it just begins to change where he says, I wish I could be present with you now 
and change my tone, for I'm just, I'm perplexed about what's going on. And he just continues to share these amazing truths. In 5.1, he begins to saying, like, for freedom, you have been set free. In the last few weeks, we've looked at what this life looks like of following a life in the flesh versus following a life in the spirit and what that's supposed to look like. And last week, we looked at what is this gospel community. So it reminds me, if anybody's a parent, they might have had a similar experience, but this, this, how Paul starts off kind of hot and then he's kind of coming down and he's just getting back to that point where he's like, okay, this is the truth. Now, in my, in my house, we've got four little crazy kids running around and I don't know if anybody's ever had this experience, but have you ever had that moment where all of a sudden it's like, hold on a second, time out, wait. You flushed what down the toilet? <laughs> that might be one of them right there, that little giggle you heard. So we have that experience often. I cannot tell you how many times we've had to replace the toilet paper roll holder. That is not something that naturally wants to go down a toilet. So we have this issue in our home. And when this happens, it's just like, wait a minute, again? Why have you done this? And so you're just sitting there trying to walk through the truth with this tiny little child who's just innocent trying to figure out life. And eventually you just, you, you kinda, your tone comes down a little bit and you're like, okay, just, let's just get to this final truth. Can we agree that we're not going to flush any more toilet paper holders down and just this, this sweet, tender moment at the end. And that's, that's where we've come to in Galatians here. So I would love to dive into God's word because that's really why we're here. So if you want to turn to Galatians 6, starting in verse 11, I'm going to read through the entire section and then we'll kind of just come back and pick through some stuff. So Paul starts off, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So, kind of want to start off little background on what happens with letter writing back in Paul's day. So you see this kind of awkward thing if he says, like, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So what would have been common in that time is you would have had a scribe or a secretary or somebody like that writing most of the letter, somebody that was a trained penman. And then at the author would take that last little section and say, okay, these are those points that I just really want to drive home for you. It's that moment where he's saying, if you've checked out through the rest of this, pay attention here. Because what I'm about to say is that key message that I do not want you to miss. I almost wonder if it would have made more sense to start this series with this section to give that lens for which to view the rest of the book of Galatians, but we're too late now. We'll make that note for next time. Paul gives us these final thoughts as we get into it. And the first thing I really want to tackle is 
This is, this is going to be common if you've been here through the whole series. You've been seeing this a lot where you have this, this conflict between religion versus relationship. Or we've been calling it legalism versus living in license. But it's this internal versus this external battle of what's really going on. And so you see this in verses 12 and 13. Um, where in verse 12 it says, For those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So really what, what we're going through here and what we're seeing is these Judaizers who had been for so long grown up in the Jewish faith and been told this is what your life is supposed to look like now are introduced to this Jesus character that changes everything of what life was. I think they're having a hard time letting go of that stuff. So what, what's happening with these Judaizers is they're caught kind of in that moment of like one foot on a dock and the other foot on a boat, and it's just slowly drifting apart, and they're like, I, I want to try to hold these together. I, I, I want Christ. I like the idea of that, but I can't let, seem to let go of my, my past life in this, this Jewish faith. Can't, can't I have both of these things? But what happens is that as the boat drifts from the dock, eventually if you're trying to hold on to both of those, you fall in the water and look like a moron to both people that are on the dock and on the boat. I don't know if any of you guys have had that experience, but I had that experience in life where I metaphorically fell into the water in between because I was trying to hold on to these two things. Because the reality is when you're trying to hold on to both things, you're not really fully on the boat. You're not really fully in Christ if that's what's going on. So we see this this focus on this external versus this internal because what the Judaizers were trying to say is that Yes, Jesus is awesome, but in order to fully follow him, you have to also follow our rules that we've been grown up and taught. So they were, they were treating Jesus as this add-on to the Jewish faith. And that's not Jesus. Let's be really, really clear on that. You cannot take Jesus and just rubber stamp everything on because what happens Again, this, this religion versus relationship, there's kind of two different forms that that religion can take. One is the form of religion that call, is called legalism that we've talked about a lot. So legalism is those things where you, you create all these rules around how you're supposed to dress, how you're supposed to act. You can't do this. Oh, you have to do this. But really, at the, at the root of legalism, it's, it's wanting to try to, I'm going to do these things to put God in my favor because if I do these things, then God has to bless me. People, that's not the gospel. And the other side of that, as we've talked about, is that living in license is the whole idea of God's going to love you no matter what. So just go do whatever. But that's not the gospel either. You see, there's this thing called a relationship with Jesus Christ, and this is where the gospel comes from. Because Christianity is not a religion. If you want to make a religion based on works, let Christianity be done on the one work that was done 2,000 years ago on the cross on a hill far, far away. Because that is the one work in Christianity that means everything. And if you think that Christianity is about works that you can do to put God in your favor, you have missed the point. And we need to go back to the beginning and look at all this again. See, because what happens with this is let's take a couple of real-life scenarios. Let's take somebody that's a drunkard. The legalist is going to say, well, you just have to try harder to not drink. The person living in license is going to say, well, just do whatever. 
God's going to love you. But the reality is that there's the, the conversation has to be there's this man living inside of you named Jesus Christ and that and that alone is going to push the drunkenness out of you and without that, there's no hope. Or if there's somebody that's sleeping around on their spouse, the legalist is going to say, yeah, you know, just try harder to not do that. person in license is going to say, so what? God's going to love you. Continue to do whatever makes you feel good. That's what our culture talks about a lot. But the reality is without Jesus, this man named Jesus living inside of you that is pushing all of the darkness out of you, there is no hope in this life. So if you've been living in this religion called legalism or if you've been living in this religion called living in license, you have not been living in relationship with Jesus Christ. And I urge you, I plead with you, hear that message and come to the relationship of Jesus Christ. So as we go on in verse 13, Paul lays out this whole thing and this, this is a repeat if you remember For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. When I was reading through that, I want to bounce real quick back to Matthew 23. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, go ahead. Otherwise, I'm going to read it for you as well. There's a couple sections I want to read here. Verses 1 through 7 is where I'm going to start. So the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day that were the kind of the, the, the real big deal, the cool people that had everything down. So Jesus is in a crowd, and he begins to talk. He says, verse 2, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they teach you, but do not do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they will make their flak trees broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Flak trees were these things that they would kind of tie, these fringes, these tassels on the bottom of their garments. and jump into the Old Testament to kind of walk through what those are, but we're not going to do that now. So it's laying out this, this idea of who these Pharisees were. Jump down to verses 13 through 15 with me, if you will. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes converted, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. Jump down to verse 25 with me, if you will. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Those are some pretty heavy claims that Jesus lays against the religious leaders of that day. Called whitewashed tombs. So the story behind that is there, there was this hill that people would walk up to go kind of for this religious ceremony and people were buried along the path for this because they thought that when, when the Messiah did come, that's where the resurrection was going to come from so they wanted to be closer to that. So as people were going up, 
in the religious law, the legalist side of the religious law, if they touched a tomb or a grave, then they were going to be unclean and they could not do it. So they would whitewash these tombs so that people would see them. They looked great from the outside. They looked all nice and pristine, but what he's saying is they were full of dead bones. So you see, what the reason I jump back there is the Judaizers were no different than the Pharisees and the scribes, except for they tried to ascribe Jesus to their form of legalist religion. That's not what we're supposed to be. So they were trying to carry on these habits, follow these rules and boast in this external appearance, just have that Jesus stamp that you put on people, and that's what you need. But if we go back even to the beginning of Galatians 6, where Paul was laying out this, this life walking in the gospel, this life in the spirit, versus the life walking in the flesh, we can see very clearly that there is something that happens when somebody accepts Christ in their heart, that their life begins to change. It should not be these things. Your life should look like these things. But let's not confuse this with your trying harder in this legalistic religion, but because of the relationship you have, it changes your life. So let me ask you this question. What is your motivation in sharing the gospel with others? So are you more interested in having more people in the building or seeing your own life and their lives come more like Jesus? Because what the religious leaders back in Jesus' day were doing and what these Judaizers were doing is trying to increase their numbers. So I could, I could imagine kind of a group of good old Jewish boys go out trying to evangelize, and they're, they come back, and they're in a little huddle afterwards, and one of the guys is like, yep, I got to circumcise four guys today. Somebody else comes in, and like, good work. I got to circumcise six. And you kind of have this whole little thing of like trying to like keep track of like how many foreskins are on your like little like evangelism belt thing. Really weird picture, I know, but I'm just trying to paint the picture of how ridiculous this looks because I think the same thing happens in Christianity. How often have we talked about evangelism in a way where it's just trying to get another convert to put another notch on our belt of somebody that we've been able to get to lead to pray the prayer and that's it? That's a good thing. However, if that is it, that's not right. And what I mean by that is if we are not first looking at our own lives and having our lives begin to look more like Jesus, if we're trying to live this hypocritical life, and just knowing that I'm going to be praised because I was able to come back into that circle and say, I had four people that were willing to lift up their hand and pray the prayer. Or somebody else comes in and says, I had six people willing to lift up their hand and pray the prayer, but do nothing to actually walk with that person to see their life become more like Jesus, then we have missed the point and we're no different than the religious leaders of the day or the Judaizers. Because I think what happens in us when we focus so long on this concept of religion, we begin to get a hard heart. We are no longer able to really experience the richness and the fullness of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I ask you, is your heart hard or is your heart soft? When you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you, are you able to receive that? Or do you have to filter that through your legalism or license filter to try to figure out how you're supposed to interpret that? Because, you know, Jesus has this, this, this goal, this plan, this mega feast that he lays out before us. I think some people are so blind to seeing 
the richness that they, they see this feast before us and they think it's rotten food. Or the, the beauty of this cup that is the wine that represents Jesus' blood and we drink it and we think that it tastes like dirty trough water because we have this hardness of heart that we do not realize what Christ has done. No, I, I don't want to leave us in that heavy point, but I do want to bring us back to asking the question of, are you at that relationship with Jesus? If not, we're missing it. And grab somebody after the service and ask them to examine your life with you to try to see if your relationship or if you are religion. Please don't live any longer in religion. So Paul continues on. In verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this term boast. We've, we've seen this a couple of times. Last week, Matt talked about this in verse 4. Um, he says, But let each test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. But now in verse 14, we're seeing Paul say, Well, don't boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. Okay, I want to break that down really quick. And then we're going to jump past that because this is not the main point. But the first point in verse 4, there's, there's two different Greek words that Paul's using here that both get translated as boast. The first one is more a matter or ground of glorifying. So it's the equivalency of if a jeweler has been working on this really precious stone and he looks at it at the end and he says, yep, I did a pretty good job cutting that diamond. That's that first kind of boasting in the work that you've done. That's not boasting in the work that was done at the cross because you and I did nothing at the cross except for accept that. So the second boasting is talking about to glory whether with reason or not. The same word is used in verse 13 when it's saying that the Judaizers are wanting to glory in you. They're wanting to boast in you. Their focus on trying to boast is in the wrong thing. So what Paul is saying here is that my boasting will only be in the cross. Now, let me paint a picture for you real quick. I think sometimes we, we look at the cross, we think about the cross, and we romanticize the cross, and we forget what the cross was. The cross was invented by the Romans as the worst form of torture and punishment that the world had ever seen to that point. And I might even say, ever since then, there's never been a worse form of punishment invented than the cross. The term excruciating was invented because there was no word to describe just how bad the pain was of being nailed to the cross because the Romans were amazingly good at getting the nail through a nerve in your hand And that's where the term excruciating came from. So in Paul's time, when he's saying this, they're not having this 2,000-year-removed view of the cross, thinking that it's this romantic idea. They're thinking of, wait a minute, I'm seeing people getting crucified out my window. You want me to glory in that? That torturous machine that was invented to inflict pain on everybody that touches it? Wait, what? That's kind of the ridiculousness of where this is coming from right now. It, had Jesus been killed in the 1500s, we would all be wearing little guillotines around our neck. Had, been Jesus, had Jesus been killed a year ago, we'd be wearing these little electric chairs around our neck. But it's, it's the form that was the, the way to kill people that he was saying he wants to glory in. So you and I might think of that realizing, wait a minute, I don't want to glory in that. I don't want to embrace that. But here's the truth. 
our Savior, Jesus Christ, embraced that torturous machine called the cross. And because he embraced it, we can embrace it knowing that we are safe because of his fight at the cross. And what the Romans intended for death is what brought you and I life. And that is that freeing hope. So as weird as it might think, it's like go up to like an electric chair and hug it. Think of that when you think of the cross, of that, that torturous machine that was invented. But because our Savior embraced that, so can you and I. Paul continues in verse 15, he says, for neither circumcision counts nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In verse 5, in Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul says the same thing, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So circumcision and uncircumcision is is nothing. When you come to the point of salvation, when you come to that point of decision, your past life does not matter anymore because it is not your past that's going to bring anything good in or bad in. You are who you were, but it's now this life in Christ that is what really matters and counts. So if you're coming to the cross circumcised or you're coming to the cross uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. What matters is being in Christ. Christ. He continues that verse and he says, but only, so in verse 5, 6, he says, but only faith working through love. And here he continues and he says, none of that matters but a new creation. So the, the Greek word here is, I have no idea how to say this right, but it's kathesis or something of that nature. But what it means is it was this rabbinical usage. So the rabbis would use this to describe somebody that came from pagan, Gentile, non-believing, idolater, to the faith in Jewish faith. So what's awesome here is Paul is hijacking their terminology and lumping the Jews in there too. So he's saying that, yes, anybody that comes from this pagan, Gentile, non-believing, idolater status or the Jews that come to faith are this new creation. So he's hijacked that term, which is amazing to me. And he also... I just just want to ask that question of what's that criteria for becoming a new creation? In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I want to present that, that that criteria to become a new creation is to be in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? I can be in a pool If I'm in a pool, there's no way for me to be dry because I'm in what's around me. So if you are in Christ, your life should therefore then begin to look more like Christ because you are in Christ, Christ is in you. There's kind of this weird melding that happens and your life is no longer your own What the old should be passing away. So it's this, think of it of, what the, what the Judaizers were wanting to teach and what the religious leaders of Jesus' time were wanting to teach was all of this extra burdens that they were putting on people. And when you put these external pressures, it just weighs people down. Now, the difference is when you have Jesus in you and it's that pressure coming from the inside out, it's freeing because it's pushing all of that away. So we have freedom when Christ is in us and the work is coming in us, pushing out, pushes all of that stuff away and we have freedom So if you're feeling burdened, I don't know if you really fully get the relationship. 
because the relationship should be making you freer. So what identifies you? Are you a new creation? Does your life look different than before you were in Christ? Kind of two stories I want to share real quick. We have a new believer that's been coming to our connection group that her story is just amazing. She went to the um, Case for Christ movie that came out a couple months back. And coming out of that movie, she was agnostic going in, and she was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm in. Sign me up. So she comes back home to her apartment that she's sharing with her boyfriend, tells her boyfriend, sorry, there's this guy named Jesus that's living inside of me now, so I'm not going to sleep with you anymore. He's like, what? I'm out. So he leaves. She's like, whatever. I don't care. I got this new guy. His name's Jesus, and he's better anyways. So her life is beginning to look different because of this Jesus that's inside of her, and everything is beginning to change. For me, my life changed when I was in college. I grew up in a church going home, but it was in college when faith became real to me. So my first semester at University of Iowa was just kind of a downward spiral of craziness and drinking, and I'm going to have conversations with my kids at some point that I'm going to have to say, don't be like daddy was because it wasn't great. I'm not proud of that time of my life, but there's, there's this thing that happened when Jesus entered into my life. I came back to school, and that first Thursday night, because if you've ever had the experience, for some reason, weekends start on Thursdays in college. So that first Thursday night, I have a bunch of my friends I used to go drinking with stop at my dorm room. They're like, hey, man, we're going out drinking. You coming with? And I was like, no. And they're like, what? I'm not going. They're like, are you feeling all right? I've never felt better. They're like, what's wrong with you? Nothing. What happened to you? You know what? God radically changed my life over Christmas break, and I would love the chance to share it with you sometime. I had a lot of people look at me like I had an alien on my shoulder, like, what what is happening to this guy? But there was also people that saw that change my life, and they were like, I'm interested in hearing your story. So I was able to share God's story and what he was doing in me because there was this, this change that had happened in me. Like we talked about two weeks ago, the evidence of that change being life walking in that spirit. So I just want to ask that question again. Does your life look different than before you were in faith, and not because you're trying harder in a legalist way, but because there's this guy named Jesus who lives inside of you that is pushing all of the junk and ugliness out. As we get into Paul's final benediction and closing of this, Paul says, and it's for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I'm going to touch really quick on this Israel of God concept. What he's doing is he's summarizing here points that he had made before because you, you see, when, when the Jews heard Israel, they thought of Israel in the Old Testament. So they thought to be part of Israel, you have to be circumcised, you have to be part of this. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Not anymore. Because the Israel of God, the true sons and daughters of God, like in chapter 3, he talks about, you are the true children of Abraham. In chapter 4, he talks about you are the child of the free woman just as Isaac was. And he's just bringing these truths back where the false teachers wanted to say that the only way to be part of Israel was to follow the law. Paul is saying that no, only those that follow the gospel are the true Israel of God. And the only way to follow the gospel is to be in relationship with Jesus. 
Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with Jesus. And I'm being repetitive on that point for a reason. So in verse 17, this is kind of probably one of those verses that I kind of sat on and chewed on for a while, but he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So to bear, we talked about that last week, to help bear each other's burdens. He's just going to have to bear his own load. A couple of other times this is used is in Luke 14, where he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. John 19 said Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Acts 9, as Paul was being called, he said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry, to bear my name before the Gentiles. So, you can kind of see this, this concept of what it means to bear. It's to take up this heavy load to carry or to bear that, to, to bear what is burdensome. And so Paul here is saying that I am bearing the marks of Jesus. So the word marks here is the Greek word stigma. Now, I work in real estate, so there's a lot of times we have these things called stigmatized properties where it's that like, ooh, that bad thing happened in that house. You do not want that house. Now, stigma in the Greek was more referring to a mark pricked in or branded upon the body. So slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander, branded or pricked, basically cut into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belonged to. So Paul's saying, let's compare marks. You bear the mark of circumcision that happened when you were eight days old, the marks that I bear are the scars from being lashed 40 times minus one. The scars that I have from being stoned on behalf of Jesus. And Paul is able to look at those things in other spots. He's just describing that background and saying that because of Jesus, I will gladly bear this burden. Because I have a king that bore much worse than me and died on that hill far, far away so that one day I can be reunited with him. So how do we bear the marks of Jesus then? Do you have marks of Jesus that can look like coming through trials of walking with him? Well, that can look like being persecuted. Most likely, most of us in this room have not had real severe persecution. We've walked through trials And have you come out on the other side with some of those marks and seeing that, yes, I have gone through this, but it is still Jesus in me that gives me the strength to do that. So in conclusion, of all the conclusion of this book, let's just remember the core message of the gospel. That you have a God that loves you so much that even while you were yet sinners, he sent his one and only son to come and live a perfect life, to struggle with the same struggles you have, to have the same temptations that you and I have, to live that perfect life, to be accused of things he didn't do, to suffer a torturous death on a cross, be separated from God as you and I, apart from Christ, are separated from God. But he bore that on him and he was raised back from the dead And he sits at the right hand of God the Father today, now, looking out for you and I so that you and I can be justified and brought back into the fold of God.
That is the core message of the gospel that I hope you see out of the book of Galatians. So as you go from here today, may you experience the peace that God gives to those that love him. May you understand the grace that he has given you that you do not deserve, but he has given freely to you and I. That is the message of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you love us enough that even while we were yet sinners, you have chosen us to give us new life so that in your Son, we might truly be able to live. Lord, I'm so thankful that I don't have to rely on who I am to come to you. I'm so thankful that you have given us your spirit inside of us that that lives in us, that helps to make us more like your son, God. Lord, I'm so looking forward to the day where I get to walk through those gates and be once again reunited with you because of the work that Jesus did. Lord, as we go out from here today, may we just really just have a new sense of that grace that is you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. How deep the Father's love for us.